They say it's bad luck to toast with a glass of water. It's actually banned in the United States Navy, quote, as it dooms the toaster to a watery grave, end quote. It's a superstition, or a curse. If you toast with a glass of water, the belief is that you will die of drowning, a grim fate for just toasting with what you've got. But the Navy has held this tradition, and it's spread to the public, myself included. I hate to be superstitious, but if you're gonna toast, you better take a sip before you put the glass down, and man oh man, let's hope it's not water. But that didn't stop Tampa's city officials a few decades ago, back in the 1970s. One of my guests this week, who you'll hear from in just a few minutes, Jack Prater, he pointed me in the direction of this story, of this unusual anecdote. I couldn't believe it when I heard it. He told me that back in the 70s, when the wastewater treatment plant that opened in Tampa had finally produced clean water, the city officials celebrated this remarkable benchmark by taking champagne glasses, filling them with the cleaned wastewater, and drinking it. Indeed, an article from July 3rd, 1979 from the Tampa Tribune includes a fantastically odd photo. Four men, some in sport coats and ties, all with champagne glasses, gingerly drinking water with giant tanks stretching into the distance behind them. It was a publicity stunt, to be certain, but a significant one. The writer of the attached article, named Brad Bull, notes that the champagne glasses were actually engraved with the date of the celebration and the name of the beverage they had just consumed. It was water, sure, but let's not be too pedestrian. It wasn't just water. It had a more specific name. Quote, Advanced Wastewater Treatment Effluent. End quote. Effluent is a word that makes me, frankly, a bit queasy, but it's important we get to know its definition. Effluent is literally sewage, wastewater, that has been treated in some way. This is from the appropriately named Wastewater Digest. It notes that effluent isn't the water that comes from our homes, like from our bathrooms or our kitchens. No, effluent is water that comes from drainage, usually wastewater from rain or other sources that flow into the drains around our communities. We're going to talk about this a lot throughout this episode, but there are certain bodies of water that are regulated by the government, and, and that water, if it has some waste in it, if it has some, some drainage into it, that can become the wastewater that is processed by these wastewater treatment plants and becomes this cleaned effluent. But if we're being honest, a lot of it is actually coming from our storm drains. It's the runoff from, from rain or even other water sources that then takes the chemicals from the world around us, perhaps from our lawns or from our homes, and then drains them down into a storm drain and oftentimes goes through a wastewater treatment plant that then will spit it back out into the water. That water will eventually reach waterways like rivers, streams, or lakes, but it has to be treated first. That's what this water at this treatment plant back in 1979 was, wastewater from the drains that had been cleaned, and now these city officials were literally drinking it from champagne glasses, no less. A brilliant bit of performative politics. It's not just water, folks. It's as good as champagne. It had been a promise that Tampa Public Works Director Dale Twatchman wanted to keep. Quote, more than two years ago, Twatchman promised that once Tampa's $90 million sewage treatment plant was completed, its water would be so clean that he would drink a glass of it. End quote. Now, lo and behold, he was there, keeping up his end of the promise. Apparently, he offered a glass of the water to the crowd that was gathered. Quote, an offer to taste the water was made to the crowd, which started backing up at even the thought of it. End quote. <laughs> It was a good publicity stunt, but people were just not into it. <laughs> the sentiment worked, however. The water was clean, at least in that moment, but no one really wanted to test how clean it was. This wound up truly only being a publicity stunt. The water isn't actually meant to be perfectly drinkable. It's just meant to be good enough to go back into our waterways. Quote, it costs too much to keep the water pure enough to drink, especially when it is just being pumped into Tampa Bay. End quote. It was, Twatchman admitted, a proof of concept. This water can be drinkable, even if not all the time. 
That was 1979, a pivotal turning point in the conversation about keeping Tampa Bay's water clear, a fight that has persisted in that region of the state for decades now. In the last few years, the conversation about protecting this waterway has been facing challenges left and right. From chemical spills and red tide and legislative budgets, the water of Tampa Bay is beset on all sides by threats to its health. As this episode is being written, the week before it is released, there was a report of thousands of gallons of sewage being dumped into the nearby water. Friend of the show, Max Chesnes, wrote about it for the Tampa Bay Times. This article is from August 22nd. This episode is coming out on August 28th. So th this was just this past Tuesday. The sewage was dumped into Riviera Bay, an offshoot into the peninsula where the city of St. Petersburg resides, just south of the Gandy Bridge that crosses Tampa Bay. So it's, it's right there on that peninsula where St. Petersburg lies. This quote is from Max, quote, roughly 10,600 gallons of untreated wastewater poured into the bay bordering Whedon Island Preserve, an aquatic and upland ecosystem harboring scores of Florida plant and animal species, end quote. The sewage spill eventually was stopped, but it is unfortunately only the latest in a long line of dirty water pouring into the waters of Tampa Bay. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the waters of Tampa Bay. I had the distinct pleasure of boarding a boat a few weeks ago with a journalist and an activist out onto the glassy, smooth waters of Tampa Bay, where we held a long discussion under the morning sun about Tampa Bay and her waters. I'm going to take you there today as we sit in the middle of the very subject of today's episode. We'll talk about the bay, the fish, the water, the algae, and the uphill battle to keep water clean, both here on Florida's Gulf Coast and throughout the state at large. Water is always nearby when you're in St. Petersburg, Florida. St. Petersburg is a unique town in Florida, oft forgotten, I fear, due to the city to the east, which is Tampa. But St. Petersburg is a city all its own, with its own identity and its own set of problems. I grew up going to Clearwater to the north, but I've spent more than my fair share of time in St. Pete Beach, a town just to the west of St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg and its neighboring beach towns sit in a unique place in Florida's larger ecological layout. If you look at where St. Pete is located, it is sincerely a peninsula in and of itself, as Florida is to North America. St. Pete is on a peninsula on a peninsula. Tampa Bay stretches out below St. Pete. It is a massive body of water, a significant part of our Gulf Coast. Tampa is to the east, and St. Pete is to the west. It's almost like a cul-de-sac of water along our coast. Technically, Tampa Bay is considered a shallow estuary, and it consists of a few bodies of water. Lower Tampa Bay, Middle Tampa Bay, and Old Tampa Bay, along with McKay Bay and Hillsborough Bay. It receives fresh water from the Hillsborough River and salt water from the Gulf of Mexico. And what's more, Tampa Bay has a massive watershed that stretches the water of the bay to far more distant lands than even the maps would suggest. The, the watershed goes even further than the bay itself. It is Florida's largest open water estuary. It borders three counties, and it is roughly 400 square miles. That's larger than many cities in Florida. It is an ecosystem all its own on the coast, and like all ecosystems in Florida, it is more like multiple ecosystems in one place, connecting other ecosystems just by its very existence. So when we talk about the water quality here in the bay, you must understand its impact on the surrounding areas. You're never far from the bay when you're in Tampa or St. Pete, and that means the water is never far from you. I arrived to St. Petersburg on a Thursday night, fighting my way through five o'clock traffic and the blinding glare of the setting sun. 
I'd been near the city a lot this summer, but I came back a few weeks later to get on this boat and see what was going on on the water. I slept actually on the couch of Gabrielle Khaleesi on Thursday night, friend of the show and journalist for the Tampa Bay Times. My clothes and my microphone were laid out for a hot Friday morning ahead. It has been hot this summer, very hot. Step outside and you feel it. Environmental reporters across the state have been covering it in depth for months now, including our friend Max Chesnes. Through his work at the Tampa Bay Times, Max has been covering Florida's many environmental troubles, from water to climate to animals to everything else. When we first met Max two years ago, he was a writer at the Treasure Coast Palm. He introduced us to the story of the manatees and why they were dying in such large numbers back in 2021. He introduced us to our now recurring guest, Dr. Larray Simpson, who has since joined us to talk mangroves and seagrass. And in fact, Max was supposed to actually join us for this episode, which would have been a welcome return for a friend that has now moved from the East Coast to the West, but we missed him this time. Our, our schedules were not able to align, but that makes sense. The man's busy. He's, I swear to you, as I was doing the research for this episode, every article I clicked on, Max Chesnes was the byline. The, the man's putting in the work. So we'll have Max again on the show, and I, I'd love to catch up with him on microphone with you so you can hear about all the amazing stuff he's doing. But Max actually arranged this meeting on this fine Friday morning, and he arranged my guests for this week. So he must be thanked. I would not have gotten in contact and not gotten on this boat if it wasn't for Max getting me in touch with these two folks who will be our guides this week. Their names are Justin Tramble and Jack Prater. We met at a boat dock in the southern streets of St. Petersburg. I met Jack first, a recent graduate from the University of Florida who was recently promoted at the Tampa Bay Times to a position as climate and beaches reporter. He's from Fort Myers and did some reporting firsthand as Hurricane Ian impacted that city just last year. He is well versed in the topic of Tampa Bay's water. He and Max have been covering it all summer. We wait for our ride to pull up. To be honest with you, I, I was expecting a truck with a boat on a trailer to pull into the parking lot and then we'd load the boat into the water, but I was, I was happily mistaken. Cruising around the corner of the mangroves just offshore is a small boat. Piloting that boat is Justin Tramble, sunglasses gleaming on his face as he pulls up to the dock. Jack and Justin are both very comfortable with being on boats, but your humble host spends most of his time on solid ground, so I'll admit... I had a sense of unease as my microphone and I hopped onto the vessel. Once aboard and once past the no-wake zone, Justin kicked the engine into high gear. If we were going to chat on microphone, this was not the place. We needed to be out on the water. Soon the boat was ripping through the water, the wind howling in my face as we careened through the estuaries, making hard turns around boating signs, cruising past the waterside homes of St. Pete's residential neighborhoods. As we approach the bay proper, Justin shouts something that I, that I can't quite hear about dolphins, and he makes a hard turn toward another boat's wake. We bounce through the valleys of the water and make a sharp turn yet again to the left. I spot the dolphins now. He's right, there were dolphins, their slick backs, breaching the surface for just a moment. Then, as Justin throws the boat into high speeds again, he shouts something about the wake of the boat. The dolphins, I would soon learn, seem to enjoy jumping through the tall ripples of a boat's wake. As we sped over the water, dolphins joined us for a moment, half a dozen of them bursting to the surface, following our wake. One, incredibly, leapt from the water and did sort of a barrel roll, a little flip through the air. It was smaller than the others, a, a baby, perhaps, enjoying the cut of this boat as we made our way into Tampa Bay. The dolphins left us soon after, but I thought about them for the rest of the day. Within just a few minutes in the middle of the conversation, a sea turtle would breach the surface near our boat, floating along, which is something I'd never seen before, a wild sea turtle. I've seen them in captivity, or I've seen photos of them, I've seen their nests. I've never seen a sea turtle just, just swimming on by, but there he was. Oh, that's Look at awesome. Look turtle. A sea turtle. Oh, yeah. 
Wait, seriously? Yeah, you can kind of see the. Is that the, is the, the yeah? Uh -huh. there you oh go. my <laughs> god! Oh my god! I hate to fanboy about Florida nature, but that's unbelievable. <laughs> I don't we'll know if I've ever seen a wild <laughs> sea turtle. The passengers of this ship, Jack, Justin, and myself, all seem to agree. The bay was putting on a show for us. We park eventually in the still waters of the bay. Justin said the water was like glass on this morning. Without meaning to, Justin actually stopped the boat directly under the launching flight path of the nearby airport. Throughout the conversation, small airplanes would surge to life overhead, ascending to the clouds as we waved from below. So keep an ear out. You'll hear the planes coming and going throughout our chat. I'll, I'll try to edit out the extremely loud engine bits because it's, it's, it's quite an interruption, a very funny one. But just picture us there on a small boat in the middle of Tampa Bay, the St. Petersburg Pier and St. Pete's beautiful downtown skyline, the backdrop for our conversation. Without further ado, let's actually meet our guests. First up, this is Justin Tramble, the executive director of Tampa Bay Waterkeeper. He grew up fishing, which established an early relationship with the water and led him on the path to this opportunity that he has right now. I really fell in love at a very early age being on the water. And so that combined with my experience in local government and education, um, this position just sort of you know, fell in my lap, I guess. How so. long have you been here? How long have you been doing this? Uh, I've been the executive director of Tampa Bay Waterkeeper for a year and a half. Nice. Yeah. So, so st still baby, still new. <laughs> How long has Tampa Bay Waterkeeper been around? Yeah, so 2017, uh, we were founded. Okay. Tampa Bay Waterkeeper is part of what is known as the Waterkeeper Alliance. Quote, a global network of over 350 grassroots leaders in six continents protecting everyone's right to clean water. End quote. The Tampa Bay Waterkeeper defines themselves on their website as the following, quote, Serving our population of more than 2.7 million people across Hillsborough and Pinellas counties, Tampa Bay Waterkeeper works to improve, protect, and preserve Tampa Bay's watershed through citizen engagement and community action rooted in sound science and research. End quote. A pretty clear mission statement, if you ask me. And then, um, you know, fast forward to, you know, now or the last few years, Piney Point mm. and the issues... Um, and the need for more advocacy really helped uh, our organization grow. So for people who don't know what tiny, oh, hello. Yeah, I put us in like the loudest spot of the- I love it though, it's pretty great. <laughs> so that, that is an airplane. Probably. I love that. That's gonna be so fun to uh, add into the edit of this <laughs> and being like, we parked the boat in the middle of Tampa Bay directly underneath the, the launching point yeah. for private airplanes. Yeah. Uh, but for people who don't know what Piney Point is, can you can you describe what Piney Point is for as an event? Yeah, yeah. So one of the worst environmental disasters that um, you know certainly Tampa Bay has ever seen, and maybe the state. It was March of 2021. The Piney Point Phosphate Processing Facility had a leak, which caused a breach, and that nearly collapsed the entire facility. In order to prevent a larger calamity, Piney Point, with permission from the government, allowed a smaller one, releasing over 200 million gallons of polluted water, quote, untreated acidic wastewater, end quote. It was dumped directly into Tampa Bay. A few years ago, um, we had uh, one of the um, phosphogypsum uh, facilities. It's essentially like the byproduct of fertilizer. Mm. Um, one of the phosphogypsum stacks had a potential breach or had a breach. And, um, you know, they've known about it for years. Um, but uh, the state of Florida authorized a release of 215 million gallons of this toxic waste into Tampa Bay um, that 
really fueled one of the largest fish kills in Tampa Bay that we've ever seen. So, um, you know, living just down the street here, um, you know, I can tell you that all of our boat ramps here in the Tampa Bay area, specifically like a lot on the St. Pete side, had these big ass dumpsters. And for a few months, they were filled with dead fish. Um, just the amount of wildlife that perished during that time was like heartbreaking. And quite frankly, we're still recovering from, yeah. um, you know, that debacle. That's really yeah. what it was. So my organization is one of the plaintiffs in a lawsuit. Pause for the plane passing overhead and back to Justin. So being a grassroots organization, we're a part of the Waterkeeper Alliance. So there's 350-ish groups like us around the world wow. um, that advocate for clean water. And um, how we do that, we've got like three pillars, right? The first is um, probably um, sort of like our, our distinguishing I guess tool here in the Tampa Bay uh, environmental world is that we um, we have a significant uh, environmental enforcement mm. sort of like lane. Um, so that means that we, um, you know, we will litigate Clean Water Act mm. lawsuits. So um, since 2017, the organizations contributed over half a million dollars to the Tampa Bay Estuary Program and Sarasota Bay Estuary Program from our settlements. Um, you know, so Piney Point is just another one of the cases. So right. environmental enforcement, we also um, get involved in um, policy and leveraging the folks that support us sure. um, to get behind like, you know, good clean water policy, but then also to fight um, what we believe is, is bad policy. And then the third is um, advocacy education. So going like the extra step, not just talking to people about dolphins and seagrass, but like you know, making people fall in love with these things, but then also taking that extra step in teaching folks how to advocate, how to show up at a local government meeting. Sure. Um, so that's that's sort of like the elevator or the Tower of Terror <laughs> elevator pitch. So it's a wide-ranging organization, the Tampa Bay Waterkeeper, not just involved in litigation over the protection of the water, but also advocating for good policy at the governmental level and educating the public about the significance of clean water, especially in the area that they protect, which is Tampa Bay at its core. Justin mentions the Clean Water Act. We should really do a deep dive on the Clean Water Act sometime because it's, it's an amazing story, but know that it's a federal law dedicated to reducing pollution and increasing wastewater treatment that dates back to 1972. Wastewater groups sue using the Clean Water Act, pushing legal ramifications on those who violate its tenets of clean water. But this is a significant turning point. The 70s, that was when a lot of this conversation about water cleanliness really began, because before that, things were a lot more bleak in the country and for the ecology of Tampa Bay specifically. Back in the 70s, we were in way worse shape here. Yeah. Um, and during that time, like prior to some uh, legislation and prior to Clean Water Act, those types of things, um, the majority of nitrogen pollution in the Bay was from point source pollution, like wastewater dumps. Right? So like individuals? Well, no. So that was more from like government. I learned since this conversation that wastewater isn't our toilets and our sinks and our kitchens, which I mentioned earlier. It's wastewater, which is sewage and government regulated water like we talked about earlier. You know, here in the Tampa Bay watershed, um, water that doesn't go on pervious surface goes on impervious and that 
water goes into the storm drains or you know what go, goes into the creeks which come right into tampa bay right um that water can pick up things like you know recently fertilized lawns you know and fertilizer during the rainy season which is illegal but um you know that's another fight that we're we're in but um so people i guess the the basis of your question was how do regular folks get involved i think it's just simply understanding that there's an impact um uh the storm drain right that's in your front yard yeah that goes somewhere right so what we um something that i like to share with people actually kate hubbard with uh fwc mm-hmm. who's like the head uh, harmful algal bloom person red tide person um she once had like this really cool advice at this speaking panel that we were a part of uh, with her and she said you know really good exercise is going out locating your storm drain Hmm. and then like as a family figure out where that goes right you know and that that specific location you know the direct impact of the stuff you're putting in that you're allowing to get washed with rainwater and going out to the storm Yeah. yeah yeah so it seems so basic and sometimes like when you know we have opportunities like this to talk about things you'd think that it's would be complex and there is obviously complexities but in terms of like getting the needle moved and making tangible change a lot of times it's basic stuff like just making sure the community understands that you know yeah piney point was a big deal and yeah the city of bradenton dumped 165 million gallons of partially treated sewage in the manatee river a while back um that was a big deal that's a big deal but like impacts are you know can be changed if like it becomes more of like societal norms to understand right. where our stormwater runoff goes something as simple as that so to understand really where we're going from here you need to understand more of tampa bay's history so that is where we're going to throw to our other guest jack prater let's meet him first this is jack prater yeah, so uh, my name is Jack Prater. Uh, I am the Tampa Bay Times' new breaking news reporter, uh, oh, awesome. and I, I focus on climate and uh, and beaches, the beach communities around oh, awesome. here in Tampa okay. Bay. How so, did yeah. you get into that? I mean, if journalism was your was your what you studied, mm-hmm. how did environmental work become the sort of focus of that for you? Sure. Yeah. So I got a my major is in journalism. I I have a minor in sustainability studies, okay. um, which covers you know sustainable sustainability in multiple topics like economics. Um, a uh, little bit of agriculture. Um, so I, I've just always been interested in the environment. I grew up in Fort Myers. My dad had a little flats fishing boat that we used to take out on the weekends. Um, so I've, 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 I've grown up on the water um, and I grew up in an area where environmental issues were always sort of talked about. Right. Um, and especially with Hurricane Ian, uh, that has been exacerbated um, sure. a lot in the last year. Um, so yeah, so I've just always had an interest. Uh, it's always been a part, a big topic of conversation in my community, uh, right. and it's it's something that you know I enjoy covering um, and sort of educating people about. He notes now the history of water treatment in Tampa and how advocates for clean water are getting worried about the future. Interesting, yeah. because I've covered, you know, how environmental groups and government agencies. Uh, advocates, everybody has sort of come together, and Tampa Bay really feels like an, a unique place in that sense, where they have a very, we have a very long history here of uh, advocates and government agencies sort of working together. Yeah. Um, Justin touched on, you know, the estuary program um, and how bad water quality was even in the 70s. Um, I've covered, you know, the environmental history of the Bay, and, you know, you can go back and you can, you can 
see just how badly water quality or just how bad water quality was um, back before the Clean Water Act, back before the estuary program uh, came to be. Uh, there's anecdotes of people living on Bayshore who uh, silver in their house, their silver heirlooms and their silver uh, plates were tarnished because the air because the water quality wow. affected the air quality so badly um and then yeah and then when tampa opened its first wastewater treatment plant a few decades later uh the uh, city officials toasted drank they had champagne glasses and they'd scooped up the water out of the out of the um, <laughs> um out of the uh treatment plant uh, and toasted and drank the the clean water to sort of celebrate um so there's been a long history here um of people have seen uh shifts in water quality um back in the 60s 70s 80s it was really bad the 90s things sort of got a little bit better with the estuary program and, and yeah. other advocacy groups um and then uh i don't know justin you could probably talk about this too but advocates and a lot of government officials are are sort of worried here um just about what we've seen with piney point in the last few years the sure. seagrass losses things like that um so it seems you know it's it's there's ups and downs and people are worried from what i've heard uh that we're getting to another down point you know to jack's point the the bay has gone um, from being, you know, declared dead on 60 Minutes um, to being, you know, internationally, we're known as a success story. Even though we've slid back a little bit, um, especially the last few years, um, you know, we are still known as a success story. We're a highly urbanized estuary. Um, we're the largest open water estuary in the state of Florida. Um, and in 2016, despite how urbanized we are, we had the highest amount of seagrass that we've had in the bay, um, at least since you know being recorded. Um, we've slipped since then. Um, so I do think there's this, um, you know, I guess worry uh, could be the word to describe it, but um, I'd like to, to think that it's a renewed um, focus on, um, you know, sort of like you can't be up big in the seventh inning and just stop playing mm. right mm -hmm. like that's where we are right now like we gotta right. we have to we gotta like fin it rule gotta keep pitching. Know, the game never ends but yeah. you gotta keep pitching right yeah. so there's a myriad of problems here in tampa bay and it's coming from a lot of different sources and those sources seem to be impacting each other it feels like a series of events causes and effects that are having a huge impact on tampa bay and i'll refer back to a previous series of episodes on this show the ones i mentioned earlier with max and loray this may not be a scientific term but it, but it's one that that helps me understand what we're talking about it is cascading impacts when something happens to an ecosystem the fallout is not just an individual event that occurs it grows it, it, it turns into another thing and that turns into another thing and the effects sort of spread out it, it's cascading it just grows from from maybe one or several ecological disasters that turn into many more and different ecological disasters so remember how the manatees were dying in large numbers a few years ago that was because there was no seagrass for them to eat there was no seagrass in large part because the water was too murky for sunlight to reach the plants, so the seagrass couldn't grow. The water was murky because of these pollutants, nutrients, nitrogen, darkening the water. And in that particular case we talked about in the fall of 2021, the pollutants were related to fertilizer runoff. Literally, the chemicals we put on our lawns or our plants that are then washed away by the rains in the rainy season, like summer, that drains into our storm drains, or 
more significantly, sometimes just drains directly into waterways. If it isn't going into the storm drain, then, then maybe it isn't being treated by a water treatment plant. Maybe it's draining off of the fertilizer on our lawns, and then it's just going straight into the water. That, that happens. So that caused an emergency on the East Coast, which is an ongoing situation, and here on the West Coast. Pollutants from those same types of sources are having wide-ranging impacts on the West Coast, just as they are on the East Coast. They are also, in Tampa Bay, facing a loss of seagrass, just like in the Indian River Lagoon on the Atlantic Coast. I'll refer you to our episode about seagrass. Seagrass is not just a vital food source for animals in our waterways, but it's also a vital ecosystem for smaller aquatic animals that use the miniature forests for so many things. But we need to take a step back because there's something in the water on the West Coast that is having this cascading impact. It comes from something problematic and it creates something problematic. It is perhaps the most ominous sounding issue in the state of Florida. It's called red tide. So red tide is a is a natural phenomenon. Yeah. It's a naturally occurring phenomenon, but the frequency and the intensity that we're seeing, uh, scientists are saying that's what's not natural. Right. Um, and so I come from Fort Myers, uh, where we have the Caloosahatchee River, which diverts water from Lake Okeechobee. Um, so a big problem back home. Like I, I grew up with with red tide on the shores every winter um, because uh, every winter uh, Lake O was flushed and all of the sugarcane fertilizer uh, came down the Caloosahatchee and and uh, and red tide sprung up uh, all over our beaches so that's that's a specific that's specific to Fort Myers and, and that river um, but again like fertilizer loads like Piney Point uh, and and other non-point source pollution um, that is what feeds these algal blooms. Okay, Jack laid out a, a fantastic outline there of what we need to talk about because there's a lot of elements here that, that we need to really sort out. And, and it comes down to, again, these cascading effects of pollution. Let's break down a few of the statements that Jack made. And I bet there's one that really caught you off guard. If you have been reading the news at all, you've heard about Red Tide and its impact. It, it has this devastating impact on the ecosystem but as Jack said, it is indeed a natural phenomenon. Red tide is actually what's called a harmful algal bloom, or an HAB. And the red tide organism, as defined by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, is classified as Karenia brevis, or K. brevis. It gets that ominous name, red tide, because it genuinely appears as a dark red substance on the surface of water. So this organism, K. brevis, it produces a toxin that is, quote, capable of killing fish, birds, and other marine animals, end quote. It can also affect humans, specifically our respiratory systems. Their negative effects are numerous, but that doesn't mean it isn't naturally occurring. It has appeared in our waters in late summer through the years. There's even reports of it from Spaniards going back to the 1500s. However, the quantity of red tide in the last few months and in the last few years is massive. You likely saw this in the news this year. It persisted throughout the winter and spring of this year. It started in October and it was going basically until it was kind of declared gone in May, but we have no idea if it's going to grow into much larger numbers again soon. Max Chesnes was reporting dead fish washing up on the shores, clogging waterways, and other marine animals succumbing to the toxins from the blooms. And this bloom began, like I said, in October. But this is important to note. 
red tide, it can kill these animals, right? It can kill fish and birds, sea turtles, manatees. It can affect humans. It has this devastating impact on our waterways. But here is what's really interesting. Jack mentioned this just a minute ago, that pollution is exacerbating the situation. Nitrogen, which is one of these nutrients, one of these pollutants that is affecting our waters, it comes from human sources like agriculture and fertilizer. It's believed to increase red tide. There is a new study that proves that there is a correlation between nutrients like nitrogen and red tide. Using a study of the Caloosahatchee River, scientists were able to determine that, though the cause and effect is not immediate, there is a long-term impact of nitrogen on algae. They state, quote, the results show a clear link between increasing amounts of nitrogen coming out of the Caloosahatchee and the intensity of red tide on the coast, end quote. So when you have things like Piney Point dumping that exact thing, nitrogen pollutants, into the water, then you have massive, unprecedented amounts of red tide, the cause and effect is all but a straight line. Scientists naturally are still studying it. They still have to come to a scientific conclusion. But when you put more of these pollutants into the water, red tide gets worse. Scientists have proven that. If pollution is not curbed alongside all the other devastating impacts of this sort of pollution, red tide could return and persist. What has saved the bay is our nutrient reduction. Yeah. Um, but I think we need to double down. I, I'm, it doesn't help when 215 million gallons of toxic waste is dumped into our bay. Yeah. Um, you know, that's never a good thing. I, um, you basically, you've got 10, you've got a whole year's worth of nutrients that were put into the bay in like a 10 or so day period. Yeah. Right. So it's a significant bolus. Um, that's never good. Um, but I think just, you know, lifting above that, um, doubling down on our nutrient reduction um, is something that you know bay managers are trying to get a grasp on I think the, I think the reason that red tide sort of grabs people's attentions is because of how it physically manifests yeah um, you know there's a lot of ecological issues that just affect animals or plants or things like that and we can't really see that in our everyday lives but when you know when there's a red tide bloom uh, it affects people's respiratory systems uh if you're walking your dog on the beach and it eats a piece of red tide you know it could get sick and it's more than just a public health emergency and it's more than just an ecological emergency it's an economic one too our beaches and waterways around the state are a massive draw and if these red tides persist tourists are less likely to spend their money in our coastal cities just this winter, during the massive red tide bloom, festivals were canceled statewide, and beaches had to put out public health warnings due to the blooms. And frankly, the dead marine life on the beaches was hardly a draw for people. It may seem callous to point out the economic impact, but sometimes that's what gets the wheel moving. Money talks, and red tide could have a disastrous impact on our largest industry, tourism. Jack points out that it's everywhere. You see it on the beaches, of course, but he even saw it in a sawfish nursery tucked into the nooks and crannies of our ecosystems. One of the most intense parts of red tide is that it's very visible. That makes it frightening. But that also means that it's easier to point to as a threat. A visible threat is better than an invisible one, right? St. Pete Basin right next to the Vinoy, this, the pink, beautiful pink hotel. And... Um... You know, two years ago, there were dead fish, snook, grouper, tarpon, um, all along this seawall. This is like, this is, you know, 
this is like downtown St. Pete right here. Right. In like this spot, we saw all this dead wildlife. Um, and it's a really good reminder. Now, Jack said it earlier that, you know, red tide is naturally occurring. Um, but we need to stop dumping fuel on a forest fires, essentially. Yeah. Um, so hopefully with, you know, these types of conversations becomes more... Um, common outside of you know like groups like the three of us talking yeah. um but it, it just starts with talking about it i mean there was actually like a rally of people like you know walking down this there's a couple hundred people of just folks that were just upset pissed off about seeing a bunch of dead fish you know and that that case was uh, more piney point related sure because, you know, historically, red tide doesn't actually really get up into the bay. Like, yeah. It hasn't. Like, it was that much. pervasive. That it yeah, was I mean, you know, when you had a, a red tide, we had a bloom off the coast. And then when you have 215 million gallons of this toxic waste, you, you are essentially dumping a bucket of gas on yeah. a fire. So, like I mentioned, we, we have to curb these pollutants getting into our waterways, right? Well... Florida's budget this year just made a decision that has left some people puzzled and does not seem to be curbing the amount of pollutants going into our water. Mary Ellen Class wrote in early May of 2023, quote, A measure quietly tucked into a budget proposal over the weekend would prohibit at least 117 local governments from, quote, adopting or amending a fertilizer management ordinance, end quote, during the 2023-2024 budget year, requiring them to rely on less restrictive regulations developed by the University of Florida, which are supported by the state's phosphate industry, the producers of fertilizer, end quote. So the state government approved a budget line item that allowed phosphate industry approved deregulations to go forward. I'm going to say that sentence again. The state government approved a budget line item that allowed phosphate industry approved deregulations to move forward. Despite outcry for Governor Ron DeSantis to veto the line item, he did not. Our friend Max Chesnes wrote on June 16th that the fertilizer bans were, quote, a water quality tool designed to curb the type of toxic algae currently flaring up on Lake O. Fertilizer is nutrient heavy, so when it runs off into nearby waterways, it can act as a fuel for algal blooms. Fertilizer bans in summer months are meant to prevent that from happening, end quote. So just a few short months after and during the toxic algae blooms were ravaging the public health, ecology, and economy of Florida's Gulf Coast, Florida's legislature and Governor Ron DeSantis deregulated the fertilizer bans at the city and county level that were designed to prevent those nutrients from reaching our waterways. So the regulations that were in place already, they're not going away, but there cannot be new regulations and the regulations that are in place cannot be adapted or changed. So really, everything has to just stay the way that it is right now, despite the fact that there are different problems that are constantly coming into place. So Justin's going to talk about this a little bit more. It's not so much that things are being taken away that should be there. It's that there's no way for the things that are there to adapt and there's no way for new things to go into place in this current budget year. Here's what Justin has to say. So part of um, the budget this year, there was money put aside for um, the University of Florida, IFAS, like the extension, mm -hmm. to do a study on um, the effectiveness of rainy season fertilizer bans. So um, in the implementing budget, um, kind of at the last sort of ninth inning, not to baseball reference again, <laughs> but 
um, there was language that essentially um, prohibits municipalities from adopting new rainy season fertilizer ordinances or amending existing ones. So for now, um, places like um, Tampa Bay, where our municipalities already have um, rainy season fertilizer bans in place, they're good for now. Right. Um, groups like us, though, like advocacy organizations, are keeping a really close eye on that because um, potentially this could be a, a chess or you know maybe not even that high level, maybe checkers. Yeah. Um, move to you know attempt you know in future legislative sessions to roll back um existing ordinances um so we're keeping a close eye on that but yeah. but to be clear um cities counties that have these ordinances now um or they've had them in place those, those weren't impacted okay. although you know the cities and counties couldn't amend existing you know right um so yeah you know, we think it's potentially a step to take away the real common sense, you know, measure that is on the table for cities and counties to help protect the water. And, you know, yeah, rainy season fertilizer bans aren't the end all be all. Like, obviously, you know, there needs to it's more of like holistic approach. Yeah. Um, but it's totally a common sense tool. Sure. That should be used and quite frankly should be leaned into even more right from our perspective jack points out that this legislation is only for a year so we will see this time next year what has come from these rollbacks justin says something important here and he mentioned this earlier in our conversation he's not a scientist he's not an environmental lawyer he is an advocate and a leader and a captain who works with said scientists and lawyers to achieve their common goal Anecdotally, he notes, it seems like Red Tide's impacts are entering newfound territory, and he notably says, cite a scientist. Now, the impacts on Tampa Bay are still being researched, but I will note that study that I mentioned earlier all about nitrogen and Red Tide. I'll include that in the episode description, my specific citation for you to note about the relationship between the two. Justin asked me to cite a scientist in our conversation. That is my document I will cite for you. So it's anecdotal, certainly, and this scientific study is just the first of many to note the ongoing changes of red tide in Florida. There's even an article that Max wrote earlier this month, which tells us of a new technology that can track these nutrients and can give us a better map of how these pollutants impact our water. So the answers will come, and they could lead us down a path toward new solutions. Only time will tell. But what does the future look like? I think that you're always going to have to advocate for something right because just we are in and I think it's normal there's competing interests there always is like with any type of dynamic thing like like in this case like, a, like an economy and a community um, there's always competing interests that happens inherently and that's part of the whole deal so right. because of that there is always going to be a need um, for groups to advocate for the water and especially in Tampa Bay and statewide um, you know like Jack mentions captains for clean water they do a phenomenal job um, building a coalition of folks you know although they are captains for clean water Chris and Daniel down there have built tremendous inroads with the tourism industry with a lot of the industry down in Southwest Florida um, and because of that they've been able to become a force and they've secured you know, a significant amount of money for Everglades restoration and mm. projects in Southwest Florida. 
Um, and I think that's a, a really good blueprint for us, um, especially when, you know, one in five jobs are impacted by our water quality here. There should never be a time where we just say, okay, you know, we did we've enough. pitched seven innings, like, okay, we're good. We're done. Like, it's not going to be like that. We've, yeah. I mean, even since COVID, the last few years here, the, our region's seen significant amount of growth. Um, the state of Florida has. Um, just some, the influx of folks moving here, which makes our job, our role, even more important. You know, people are coming here because of this, because of the water, because of being able to live a lifestyle where you can do interviews on a boat. Right. Right? Um, but you got to protect it. Like, it doesn't. it's right. not just something that's always going to be. It doesn't just remain where it is. It's an active yeah. thing. Yeah. And yeah. like I said, it's there's always competing interest. And, you know, if you're not loud for this someone's going to be louder for something else. Right. You know, Jack mentioned earlier that some are concerned that we're entering a new valley, a new low point for Tampa's water quality at large. But they felt that before in this region, and it's improved since then, hasn't it? What does the best possible future look like for people who care about the water of Tampa Bay? I can't get over that baseball analogy that Justin makes because it rings true to me. There's a saying in sports... There's a lot of ball game left. You can't give up when you're ahead, but you also can't give up when you're behind either. Justin makes it seem like the fight doesn't really have an end. Even if the water is clean, there will always be more to do to keep it clean. The ideal world is that it's clean and we're fighting to keep it that way. But we're on the other side of the coin right now, especially as that new pollution dump from just last week has poured into the water. But if Jack is right, things may need to change in the way that water is cared for in Tampa Bay. The impacts of that sewage dump, like Piney Point, like everything else, will make themselves known soon enough. But that shouldn't be a discouraging thing. We've been behind before in this complex game of keeping Tampa Bay's waters clean. And we've come back before. It's not always been a losing game. It won't be easy, that's for certain, but as Justin said, there's a whole lot of ball game left. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes and this season of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you were here. I'm so glad that you listened to this season. I'm very, very proud of this season. There was some important stuff that we needed to talk about, Red Tide included, and it felt like I needed to give my all to it, and I hope you can tell that <laughs> I tried to give as much of my all as I possibly could. I hope you enjoyed it. it. meant a lot to me to get to talk about these topics this season. So thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoyed this season, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It means a lot to me. helps the show grow. I'd love to know what you enjoy about the show, and I'd love to know what you want to hear from the show. The next few months are already booked and ready to go, but is there something you want to hear in early 2024? I would love to know what stories you want to hear on this show. Sincerely, let me know. You can find the show on Instagram and Facebook. I've got some photos from my trip up there at WFM Pod, and you can send the show an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. Thank you. I'd like to give a huge thank you to my guests this week, Justin Tramble and Jack Prater. I will include a link to Tampa Bay Waterkeeper so you can see more of Justin's work, and I will include a link so you can read more of Jack Prater's writing at the Tampa Bay Times. These are two very important people to follow, see what they're up to, see where their work is leading them. I'm so grateful for the time they dedicated to me on a Friday morning to talk about this for the show, so thank you to them, and thank you to Max Chesnes for setting it up in the first place. 
All the music used in this episode was originally composed. I've also included some links in the episode description so you can read even more about this fascinating and complex topic. All right, folks, that is it for me this week, this season. I'm going to be taking a much needed month off from the show because there are some huge topics on the horizon. October, November, December, it is going to be a really exciting time. I cannot wait for the season ahead. Man, I've got some topics that are going to knock your socks off. I just cannot wait. So I will see you on October 2nd for the first episode of our mini-series, Wait Fright Minutes. A series of Halloween and spooky-themed episodes because that is truly my favorite time of year. I will see you on October 2nd for our fall season. Until then... Be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and now, more than ever, go Gator and muddy the water. Have a great September. I will see you on October 2nd.